chosen generation We've been called for to show his excellence All I require for life God has given me And I know who I am We are a chosen generation We've been called for to show his excellence All I require for life God has given me For I know who I am I know who God says I am What he says I am Where he says I'm at I know who I am I know who God says I am What he says I am Where he says I'm at I know who I am Welcome to Respeaks, Hosted by yours truly, Rihanna Raymond-Williams This podcast aims to share a variety of stories and conversations discussing race, education, health and so much more. Here I use my voice to create change in the hope that it inspires you to do the same. Join me on this journey. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr Peggy Warren, an independent consultant and transformative educator who uses her skills to challenge traditional approaches to leadership and educating. Dr. Peggy has worked in various roles within the NHS, delivering work-based learning programs to support staff to climb the ladders of both progression and pay within the organisation. In 2017, Dr. Peggy completed her PhD at Birmingham City University, where she explored Black British and Black Caribbean women's career trajectories within the NHS. In this conversation, I speak with Peggy about her work as an educator, her commitment to challenging traditional methods of teaching and learning, the role of spirituality in her life, and her recent book, Black Women's Narratives of NHS Work-Based Learning and Ethnodrama, The Difference Between Rhetoric and Lived Experience. Can you introduce yourself by telling me your name and what you do? My name is Peggy Warren and I would describe myself as an education consultant who specialises in leadership and management development, women's professional development. I also have an element of equality, diversity and inclusion in the roles that I undertake. This part of me is just a passion part of me. I'm a practitioner researcher so I'm really curious and I look for areas to research. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I think we're going to go into a lot of that as part of the conversation we're about to have. But just first of all, I just want to ask you a question. If you're stranded on a deserted island, what would you take with you and why? What a great question. (laughs) I think I would take my Bible. I generally use it as my guide for life anyway, but I do find it complex as well as comforting. And I sometimes find it really difficult to grapple with. So on a desert island where I had fewer distractions and demands, I guess I would have time to really focus and gain insights into both the book, which is a historical book, and that's why I sometimes find it problematic, but also into the creator of the book too. Would you say that you're very spiritual and your spirituality feeds into the work that you do? I love the term you use there, Rihanna, spiritual rather than religious. (laughs) So I definitely would describe myself as spiritual. I definitely kind of 
align myself to having a purpose in life and to be here for a reason. And so, yeah. As we know, many Caribbean women worked in the NHS during post-war era across the country. So can you talk to me more about the roles that you've worked in in the NHS and what motivated you, your decision to join the NHS in the first place? I started in the NHS, goodness gracious, back in the 1990s. And I applied for my first role as a nurse. And it was back in the days when nursing was literally transitioning out of having two tiers of nursing. And I went into nursing. I went on my first placement and thought, "Mm, not too sure about this. (laughs) But I enjoyed the first couple of weeks of the first placement. But I was, what, probably 18, 19, and I had never encountered death. It was in Birmingham. I went on a placement and there was a patient who had a stroke. And for some reason, I could really communicate with him clearly. I understood what he was saying. My peers at the time, or those who were supposed to be supervising me, I went in one morning and he had passed. And they were saying to me, oh, can you lay him out? I didn't have a clue. I'd never encountered death. And I thought, you know, is somebody going to help me? And I think at the time it was probably just woman up and just get on with it. But I had never dealt with it. So I've got to confess, Rihanna, that I sneaked into the staff room, picked my bag up and did a runner. Good, Peggy, because we're talking about being exposed to trauma immediately. As soon as as soon as you started the job, there's no kind of induction into the things you'll be experiencing. And I've heard this story before that people just quickly get exposed to these things of kind of death and chronic illness. And I guess in a sense, yes, you're in hospital, but there should be a better way to kind of introduce you to these things because it's a shock to your body. Like if you've never experienced death before, it's very frightening, very frightening. You're right. It was frightening. But then I went on and I actually trained as a dental nurse, but realised quite soon that I had kind of underestimated my own capabilities. I trained as a dental nurse and then went off to Haiti to do some work. When HIV AIDS was just coming out in the 90s, I mean, just being really exposed as a massive health issue. And I worked there for six months and that was linked to my faith as well. But then I came back, went into higher education and trained, did my first and second degree and then found myself back in the NHS as an educator, teaching both ESOL, which was English for speakers of other languages, but also preparing predominantly women who had not gained qualification at school for them to gain the qualifications in order to go on to higher education, to do nursing or whatever professional role they wanted to do. And I've been in the NHS for probably more than 20 years. (laughs) A long time. (laughs) Yeah. I currently also work in the NHS, although I'm self-employed now. I work on a lot of their positive action programmes. So, yeah, I have had a career history in the NHS. Do you feel that as an organisation, it has allowed you to develop as a professional and personally and develop a range of skills in this space? Because I know that for some people who go into the NHS, they generally just stay in one role for a long time. And I guess there's a range of reasons as to why that happens. But, you know, family security or, you know, comfortability or professional progress and all these different reasons. But do you feel like as part of the roles that you've been in, there's been a positive progression for you in terms of management, supporting your development? Or has it just been of your own back in terms of you changing to different career paths because you've been interested in that? 
you've touched another really pertinent point there. I know from the workforce race equality data that a lot of people, especially people of colour, struggle to get supported to develop within the NHS. And hopefully some of that is changing and they've bought on positive action programmes, which are specifically designed to cater for the development of people of colour. For myself, actually, I think it's been a combination. I think I've had leaders in the NHS that have really pushed me and said, come on, Peggy, you know, you can do a lot better than what you're doing and you can work at a higher level than what you're doing. So I think I've had leaders who've seen potential in me. But I've got to honestly say that when I did both my master's, well, no, my master's actually, I wasn't supported for funding, but I was given time, which was great. But for my PhD, which I'll talk about later, I actually did it covertly, Rihanna. I didn't tell the organisation or my leaders that I was doing it predominantly because I was researching black women and I was researching an issue that was a bit sticky. I guess that was your choice not to tell them, but do you think there would have been a difference in how you were treated and how they acted towards you if they knew you were doing your PhD? So at the time, I had a manager who was quite, let me use the word bombastic. She had a managerial style that I don't think that's ever taught in a textbook. I guess she just acquired it. She self-developed it. Let me be kind. (laughs) (laughs) She won't hear this. She wasn't the best communicator and she wasn't the most competent and therefore she tried to lead by domineering people and it was her way or no way and I can remember going into meetings with her actually and her banging her hand on the desk and saying you will do what I say and I would just quietly respond no I won't because I don't think what you're saying is correct or appropriate in the context. So I feel very much as though if I had told her, I think she would have certainly been really probably threatened by it. You know, and I think she would have worked a way to somehow sabotage it. Sometimes we have to make these decisions that is best for our health and well-being and professional development. So, yeah, good that you didn't tell her because it doesn't sound safe or supportive to do so. Definitely not. I know you've spoken to me before about being involved in Saturday supplementary schools in Birmingham and you kind of spoke again about your role as being an educator. So how did you get into the work of being involved in the supplementary schools in Birmingham and just the educational work? I know they're two different things because one is kind of in community and around black history and black people's development and another is around upskilling staff or potential employees to move forward in their careers. I was thinking about this because I had an interview on Friday, Rihanna, and the interview that I had on Friday, they asked me a question about how do I deal with conflict when I'm facilitating? And I think, well, do I deal with conflict when I'm facilitating any differently than I deal with conflict in the rest of my life? Because as I reflected, I thought my whole life, whether I'm at work or whether I'm in my community, I'm just an educator. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I just feel as though who I am is an educator. And I think it's because it's part of my purpose, really, or what I describe as my purpose, I'll say. So my education approach, I'll give you a little bit of an insight. I was born in Birmingham, raised in Jamaica by a single dad. 
And so we didn't have some of the luxuries of like TV and all of that when we were growing up. So I loved books as a child, maybe out of necessity more than anything else. But I was introduced to Booker T. Washington. And I just remember sitting with Booker T. Washington's book up from slavery when I was really young and thinking, oh, my days, what a character, how creative. And in my young brain, I merged, which not a lot of people do, I don't think. I merged academic and vocational training, which is what I think he did. And I just absolutely fell in love and thought, I want to be like Booker T. Washington. I want to be able to bring education into the community, have it in the classroom and just be an educator. So I think that definitely influenced how I was. And that also helped me to get involved in the supplementary school. So my faith community, my church group, they actually run a supplementary school. And I think it moves away a little bit from the historical Saturday supplementary school because it's for all people. And predominantly because we are in what would be described as a low socioeconomic area of Birmingham. So it is really well utilised. I teach English as a second language there, but I also help with the literacy. Love it, love it, love it. I ascribe to the style of education that Paolo Freire talks about. I love to have conversations with people rather than trying to say, I'm going to teach you how to do this. So I love learning being reciprocal. And then later on in life, as I started down a more academic route, the Black African-American feminists have really inspired the way that I see stuff. So Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, they advocate for starting from where the students are. And I think I've been really privileged to be able to work in wide context of education, but really starting where people are. And especially when I worked in the hospitals in Birmingham, I would say that I was, and I don't mean naive in a negative way, I just mean unexposed to a lot of things, especially community staff. And especially because I had a decade out of the UK as well. So I loved teaching black women because I would say, you guys teach me life and I teach you how to pass an exam. So, yeah, that's kind of me around education in the supplementary. It's so lovely to hear. And I love that you said you see yourself as an educator, because I feel that once you are an educator, that is transferable. But sometimes people only see themselves educating in a particular way whether that's in a classroom or a lecture hall, and they don't see that as transferable to any work that you do. Because I think that once that spirit of educator is in you, it's always there. And if you want to, it can exist in so many different spaces. Yeah. And I think my life as well. So <laughs> this morning I was getting dressed. Yes, I did get up and get ready for this interview. I was taking <laughs> it and I was putting my shoes on because I'm going to be going straight after. And I just remembered one of my students who is now trained to be an educator herself saying, so when I become an educator, Peggy, do I have to wear Peggy shoes? <laughs> <laughs> and it's really interesting that her whole concept as me as an educator is not just what I transfer or transmit or share, but it's in the whole embodiment of me, which includes my attire, which is really interesting. That's so lovely. And I think there's something else in there about you can only be what you see sometimes. 
And I know for me, definitely growing up, I didn't see many black educators. It was a rarity in my classrooms, you know, from primary school, secondary school, university, undergraduate, postgraduate. They just weren't there. And it really changes what you believe you can be because educator for me, was suggested as only being somebody in academia. And I forgot about all the amazing educators I've been exposed to in the community, in faith communities, in families, in social circles. Everybody has taught me so many things about life. So yeah, I think there's something about breaking down the barriers of what it means to be an educator and who has the capabilities to be one. And what you just said is really fascinating for me, that whole concept of you can't be what you can't see. And I struggled with that when I first heard it, probably in just a few years ago. And then I had to remind myself that my Jamaican upbringing, that decade in Jamaica, exposed me to, at all levels, seeing people like me. So when I came back, I noticed, and this might be a little bit controversial, but I hope you get some feedback from your listeners about my perception of the difference in approach that I had to life and to doing stuff because of my experience of never being subjugated in the way that some of my peers had been and how that impacted the way that I navigated the world here in the UK if that makes sense I used to have a discussion with a lot of my peers and saying well there's a difference between what I describe back then quite crudely as the Borneas and the Cumhias and although I was born here because I've been out of here I thought well because I had that exposure where I saw that I could be whatever did not have the limitations in the same way although when I came back to the UK I must admit I did have a massive culture shock (laughs) around identity. I agree so much Peggy it's something I really do think about I didn't grow up in Jamaica but my mum took me to Jamaica every year since I was born or since I was really young I remember always being in Jamaica in Easter or in the summer it was something that she was committed to doing to making sure that we knew our history we knew our family and we knew where we were from but I think I did see a difference in me growing up that when I'm in a predominantly black country I see people in all sorts of different professions that I don't see here in the UK and I think it really did impact my image of self, confidence, and just everything. I think it definitely does change you and expose you to so much more. And it's something we shouldn't take for granted because I do think there is a difference in attitude and confidence when you are in a place where people are invested in your education, such as Jamaica, and people in the classroom look like you, and they want you to succeed. You get that feeling of they want you to succeed, like this means something to them, whereas... In a British society where students or teachers maybe do have an investment in education, but it feels detached. It feels like they're just doing their job, you know? So, yeah, I do understand. I had some awesome teachers in Jamaica. and I have to name just one of them, Mrs Ricketts, who I will make sure hears this. (laughs) But was just phenomenal. Understood that we were transitioning cultures, countries, Sometimes even language, because we went to what people describe as the country. We weren't in Kingston or the city. So I can remember I went to Jamaica with my three 
British-born male siblings, and I just wanted some female company. <laughs> my British male siblings and my dad, so I just wanted some little girl friends, you know. And I can remember going to school and trying really hard to make friends, and the kids would just go, "Shut up, you mouth, you English idiot, <laughs> English girl." <laughs> My teacher used to just sit me down and say, Peggy, it'll get better. And she was just amazing. She just understood when I came back here. And it was just the opposite of that. Where <laughs> I remember going to college and they put me in a class for ESOL. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Why? What was the reason for that? Well, I can talk Patwa and I can read Patwa. But I never used Patwa as my dominant way of communicating. My dad used to say to us, you've got to be able to navigate all the world. Speak Patwa if you need to, but, you know, you need to be able to speak English. I don't know. Maybe I had an accent that's different to the one that I have now. But I remember coming back, Rihanna, and no word of a lie, they put me in an ESOL class with people who couldn't speak English at all. I remember following my tutor. If it was now, they would have said I was stalking her. <laughs> but I followed her every day for about two months, just walking around behind this woman saying, please just give me an exam so I can prove what I'm capable of doing. And I think she was just so frustrated with me one day. She just got, I'm going to give you an exam tomorrow. And I did the O-level practice paper and got 97%. I feel so shocked by what you're telling me. Like, what was it that suggests you can't speak English? Because, yes, Pat White is, like, you know, broken English. And there's uh, there's so many things in there. And I just think of the idea that black children, or Caribbean children at the time, were educationally subnormal. And these are all the things that suggest to British society that they aren't able. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Yeah, well, good for you, Peggy. Good for you that you had the kind of commitment to show her that you can do much more. And I'm not sure if other young people would have felt that they had space to kind of argue for their position and, you know, what they should have. It's tiring and it's stressful when people assume things about your body that isn't true. Absolutely. And I can remember I had a tutor and I'm glad, I am genuinely glad that I can't remember his surname, but I remember his first name because his first name was the same as my surname. His name was Warren. And I remember Warren saying to me once in class at college, he said, if attendance would make you pass Peggy Warren, you would pass. He says, but you're never going to pass your O-levels here. And I can remember, you know, just thinking, (gasps) But the Jamaican in me said, I'm going to show you. That's right. <laughs> I'm being patter though. And then when I did pass my O-levels, because I got a B in English and I think I got a B in family, community studies and whatever else I did, but I didn't get any low O-levels. And I remember not having the courage to speak up to him, but going to the classroom that he taught, knocking on the door and just showing him my transcript, just holding my transcript up. And then I just walked away because I thought, you need to be reprogrammed, mate. (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Just the assumption that because you speak with a particular accent, you can't perform in the way that you're expected to, which is nonsense. During the 60s and 70s in Britain, hundreds of black children were deemed to be educationally subnormal. As a result, these children were taken out of mainstream schools and enrolled at educationally subnormal schools 
also known as ESN schools. The pupils who attended these schools were deemed to have lower intelligence and unfortunately, black children made up a significant proportion of the student body. Steve McQueen, a black British filmmaker, retold this story as part of his Small Acts Anthology TV series earlier this year. This is a short clip taken from the BBC documentary Subnormal, A British Scandal, which also aired on BBC earlier this year. This documentary provides first-hand accounts of some black children, now adults, who were enrolled in ESN schools at the time alongside teachers and activists from the black community who organised and fought against ESN schools. When I was told the, that there were schools for the educationally subnormal called ESN schools, my immediate reaction was, what? What are you talking about? I'd never heard about this thing before. I noted ESN schools had a higher percentage of black kids than I consider normal, given the demographics of the boroughs from which they came. And also, I saw too many kids that were clearly average intelligence or even above average. They thought that their inability to speak the Queen's English, as they used to call it, was, was, was because they were thick and unintelligent, as distinct from the fact that they were speaking a different language. When I used tests with children, one found that Children didn't understand the words that were asked of them. For example, when children were asked, what's a tap? They couldn't describe it, they couldn't define it. I felt he must be able to say this, to say what this is. It's something that is used in the West Indies. It must have a name. In fact, there was no reason why West Indian children should have known what the word tap means. Because in parts of the Caribbean, a tap was known as a pipe. Fortunately, there was a, a tap in the very room in which I was testing. And I walked across the room and I said, well, what is this? And the child said, a pipe. They knew what a pipe was, which was the same concept. That meant that on tests, they were made to feel inferior when they realized that many of the items that were asked of them, they could not clearly define. Cultural bias and language misunderstandings go a long way to explaining why the IQ scores of newly arrived immigrant children seem so low. And in fact, one study showed that after black children had a chance to become acclimatised to Britain, their IQs fell within the same average range as their white peers. It also concluded that differences in IQ results between populations were primarily the result of educational environment and not brain potential dictated by factors like race. Black kid is four times more likely to be wrongly placed in an ESN school than a white kid. In other words, there were four times as many black children in ESN schools who should not have been there as there were white working class kids who also should not have been there. The ratio was four to one. The reaction of the establishment was very interesting. The leading educationalists in the ILEA appeared on television with me 
And the line was, it's all rubbish, it's all lies. So right there on the program, I quoted the statistics and said, this is your own report. Are you saying that everything you all wrote and kept hidden are lies? Then obviously five years from now, you can throw your hands up in the air and say, you see, you were right. These kids are ESN, having made sure that they get less facilities, less teaching equipment, having in short, actually engineered the environment for failure. It took six months, and at the end of six months, they said, it's all true. I think we should use it in teachers' colleges with it as recommended reading and use it in schools of education. In one sense, the whole thing has moved full circle and the concerns we used to have about ESN are still very much with us now in terms of the number of Black children being put into pupil referral units. Nobody could convince me that that continuous level of poor attainment or underachievement or whatever has got to do with the intellectual capabilities of those young people. It's got nothing at all to do with that. It would be unnatural if it did. So therefore the question is, what is it about the structural arrangements to do with schooling that continues to lead to the situation that we have right now? and? That is a fundamental question. How did your professional work inform your PhD study and why did you choose to go on this journey? I have described myself even here already as a practitioner researcher. And basically I'm on the ground. I'm teaching things like ESOL and literacy and vocational qualifications, bits of vocational qualifications. So I became quite curious about things. I love to teach. So as I said, my life as an educator, but being an educator helps you to build relationships quite quickly, especially if you're authentic in what you do. So it was whilst I was teaching literacy that I made a number of observations. And one of the observations was that a disproportionate number of my students were black women. Now, I live in Birmingham, so that was not abnormal at all. I think minority people are probably now the majority people, minoritized people are probably the majority now. A number of these women were also healthcare assistants. But when they came into the classroom with me, they were sponges not because I'd said that that was how they ought to be but it was quite obvious that compulsory education didn't work for them not because they didn't have the capabilities but it just didn't work for them so I was teaching them and getting them ready to go to university now one of the things that happened was and your parents generation may know this more than you Rihanna but nursing had two tiers it had the registered nursing and it had the enrolled nursing and in the 1990s they disbanded the enrolled nursing which was a qualification that most of 
our parents' generation were funneled into. So it was a qualification that when people came over, they recruited them, they funneled them into the enrolled nursing route. And that benefited Britain because it meant that you got some very bright women for cheap and you could actually utilise their knowledge and skills, but you didn't have to pay them as much. And they weren't able to progress as well, I'm sure. That's right. But it also meant that Britain was securing a long-term cheap labour because the enrolled nurse qualification was not recognised in the Caribbean. So most of these women who, even if they had the intention to go back to their country of birth, they wouldn't have been able to go back and get work. So it meant that Britain had a sustainable flow of nurses. Now, what had happened when I started teaching literacy was that a lot of these women were upskilling to level three vocationally so they could go to university and undertake an undergraduate programme, a foundation degree. It was work-based, so they were being paid to go on the promise that they would actually get a new professional title and a pay rise. So they'd be given a new role, really. And then after they qualified, neither materialised for any of the black women. That really hit home with me because I started to question, was I complicit in actually setting these women up to fail? Why wasn't I asking more critical questions? Why did I walk with them into being grateful recipients for what the system had to offer when I knew the history of the system? And so that's what really propelled me into going on to do my PhD. It was me wanting to explore, number one, was I complicit? Number two, I was also a bit frustrated with the women who were withdrawing from the course. It was a two-year undergraduate course, and they were withdrawing after year one. And although I understood that they saw that they weren't going to get a job, and they were still having to keep their skills current by working in a role that they'd been paired for, but not being paid for it. So I got it. I totally got it. But I still wanted them to finish and get their qualification. But what I also understood was that the system was again, exploiting black women in the way it had exploited young women since 1948 when the NHS started. It's so terrible. So terrible. And I feel really shocked to hear that. Like, I shouldn't be surprised because we know these things are structural and systematic. And when we say that, people don't really understand what we mean. But this is a clear indication of all of that. You know, there was a plan to kind of enrol these nurses in a particular way that they weren't able to progress, not just professionally, but they also can't make any more money, which then affects everything about their lives in terms of their family, their life journeys, where they choose to live and work and all of these things. Absolutely. But I think once I realised that, I wanted to then go on a journey to find out. And I thought, I've got to find out anyway. So I thought, I'm going to enrol. When I finished my master's, and I'm going to show myself up now, I don't know if I should say this in public, but when I finished my master's, the two people who guided me through my master's, actually it was the external examiner that said, Peggy needs to publish and she needs to think about pursuing a PhD. And because I wasn't a conventional 
students. I think I just found my way in wanting to do things. I didn't even know what a PhD was at the time. So I just looked at it and thought, okay. Then I looked it up and thought, oh, right, okay. <laughs> this person has got high hopes for me for a change. But it was after that I saw the exploitation of the women and I, I thought, well, what can I do with this information? And that's what started me on the journey of a self-funding part-time PhD, yeah. I love that I've heard that somebody has suggested that you pursue academia, which I've never heard in my whole experience. I mean, in terms of my own progression in academia, nobody said you can go and do a master's. Nobody said you could do a PhD. These were just not options that I even knew about. And I think only engaging with other colleagues in the community and understanding, you know, what it means to be an educator, what it means to do a PhD and a master's. I've been on that journey. But it's not often that we as black students get told that we can pursue academia in this way. So even thinking about that, you know, you mentioned that you didn't know about it. How did it make you feel? I guess you went to go and do your own research to find out what it meant. But was this something that you was excited about pursuing? Obviously, yes, because you've done it. But... (laughs) What else were you feeling about the journey? Shall I be totally honest with you? When I looked it up, I just thought, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, wow, that's what they thought of my work. And then I just parked it. I didn't pursue it at all. The one person who had been working with me, she was an Asian professor. And she had actually said to me, Peggy, if you are going to consider a PhD, I suggest you just spend the next two years reading. And I thought, okay, but no, I don't know that it did kind of raise something significantly emotional in me. And it's a long story to why I eventually thought I am going to do a PhD. It was because I went to do another master's. I wanted to do a master's in theology. There was a woman there who was heading up the course and the first session just accused me of something that I thought, what? And then I spent two weeks trying to say to her, I would love one of two things from you, either for you to justify what you said to me in that session or apologise because I just don't know where you're coming from. And she would do neither. And I thought, if we can't converse, communicate as equal human beings, how can I trust you to mark any of my work? So part of the start of my PhD was in defiance. So I thought, I've already got a master's. I want to show you that I can do this. That's right. Yeah, and you can and you did. Exactly. Yeah. I did, yeah. So I thank that lady who will remain nameless for cheesing me off. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And I've heard a similar story in the sense that doing a PhD or pursuing academia is almost an illustration of defiance by the people who told them they couldn't. And more power to them because we can and we should and we should be taking up more space. Thank you for sharing your journey with me. It's really interesting to think about the things that have led you on this road to doing your PhD. And I'm currently reading your book and I'm really, really enjoying how you've brought your qualitative data to life using ethnodrama. So can you explain a little bit more about what ethnodrama is and why you chose this method of engagement for dissemination of your research? Just a continuation from what I was just saying earlier, really. I will confess that I had never read a PhD thesis prior to starting my own PhD. I don't know if I would have done anyway, but I had read a number of journal articles. The presentations in journal articles are generally dense, and because they stimulate your thinking, they're not really easy to engage with. I'm speaking for myself here. I agree completely. I thought if I'm going to invest a significant amount of money 
and years of my life, I want my research to be read. And more specifically, Rihanna, I wanted my research to be read by women like me, as well as the women who informed it. So those two things were things that were really at the forefront of my mind throughout the whole journey. Ethnodrama is part of the body of research methodology and the umbrella is autoethnography. And autoethnography as a methodology allows the researcher to immerse themselves, their thinking, their emotions and their lived experiences in the research. But it also enables the researcher to present the participants as characters who retell their story. And I use the word retell intentionally because how we recall things will differ dependent on our audience and a whole range of stuff. So the participants are doing a retelling. And as they've told me as a researcher, I am doing another retelling because I'm going to put my slant on it and my own biases are going to be there. So I liked that. I liked the fact that I could do something that was going to be creative and accessible, but that was going to have me in it. Because so often when I read research about black women, I read it and think, "Uh uh-huh, I know what happened here. We told the researcher what we thought the researcher wanted to hear. We didn't tell our truths because we didn't trust the researcher to deal with our truth. And that happens so much. So I wanted this to be really real. And I can honestly say that I linked autoethnography with a black feminist stance. So as a black woman, researching black women, I knew that I had a bias and I was going to out that. I also knew that I was invested. These women were my students and some had transitioned into friends you know, who I had seen exploited. So I was also feeling or reliving with them some of their trauma. The name Robin Boylorn, Robin did some really I would say conceptual work. She did some emergent work when she wrote her autoethnography, a book called Sweetwater. She wrote about characters. She's doing research on herself as a black academic. She's an African-American, but being the only person in her family to ever go to university. And I just found that work fascinating. And I thought anybody could read this and not even think this is research, but it was so research. So what it did for me, it just bought everything. I could see it. I could feel it. I was engaged in it. And I thought, wow, I didn't know research could do that. So part of me wanted my research to do that. And I didn't know if that was even possible when I started my PhD, I'll be honest with you. But when I sat with my research participants, and they were very, very active in the whole process, I was discussing things with them all the time. And I said, I would love to do like a drama. They were all for it and go, yes, Peggy, you need to make this happen. (laughs) (laughs) And we need to be able to read it and understand it. So, you know, even if you have to put big words in there, make sure you explain the big words. (laughs) these women were just amazing at helping me to just keep it real so yeah it was a tension that I realized and I also acknowledge Rihanna that if you complete a PhD you get a title that's known that's respected 
that gives you another level of credibility. But these women, I couldn't forget that the reason I was doing this was because these women were exploited. They were still held in the lower echelons, in the lower tiers of the NHS pay structure. And so I didn't want to be another person who was going to exploit them. They needed to at least read their work. Everything you're saying is talking about accessibility. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of research is not accessible, which is why people may not engage or may not think about pursuing academia. And it's so great to think about, you know, not just thinking about publishing your work in any way, but ensuring that it's accessible to the people that you want to read it, particularly the participants who have been involved in it. But the future generation of researchers like myself, looking at research in a different way and thinking about, oh, I could use this in my study. And, you know, it's really inspiring to think about Peggy. So thank you. Thank you for making such a huge decision. Thank you. And I just want to send a word to anybody else who may be listening, who's like you, who's thinking, I'd really like to do something different. I am no special academic. I was just passionate about what I wanted to do. But this is the big thing for me. I'm not a big social media person, but a young African lady contacted me on Twitter and she's going to one of two of the British prestigious universities. And she asked me if she could just have a conversation with me. Somehow she had accessed my thesis. When we had a conversation, Rihanna, I think I called her actually, and she was crying. And I just thought, oh, what a way to start a conversation. She said, Dr. Peggy, Dr. Peggy, can I please read something to you? And I said, yeah. And she was reading an aspect of my thesis to me. She was reading a section of my thesis when I was talking about my angst and the fact that I was between two thoughts about wanting to write this but not seeing anything like this and I was in and out of one minute feeling really confident and buoyed up and the next minute thinking oh my gosh what am I doing and she read that to me and then she said to me that is exactly how I felt before I read your work wow and then she shared how she shared my work with her master's supervisors who then released her to write an autoethnographic piece So I look at it and I think, oh my days, isn't courage awesome? It is. It so is. My two supervisors were brilliant. One of them was particularly challenging. I said to her, I want my participants to be able to read it. And she says, what you do, Peggy, is that you write a conventional PhD and then you water it down for your participants. And I said to her, water it down. And she looked me in the eyes and she says, maybe that was clumsy, Peggy, real journey. Thank you for sharing that, Peggy. And I think it's just a testament to your courage to use a method that's not celebrated enough in academia, but also the commitment to have it accessible to more people. And I think that is so important. And I would say not celebrated in the UK yet, but honest to goodness, the Americans and internationally minoritized people have been using autoethnography to get across their research and get across their lived experience in ways that are phenomenally engaging. Yeah, I agree. This is a short clip taken from the ethnodrama Black Women's Narratives of NHS Work-Based Learning, read by Dr. Peggy Warren and Carol Cooper. This complete work is an eight-scene ethnodrama, centralising the voices of a group of black British and black Caribbean women 
reliving their trajectories of higher education and work-based learning in the National Health Service. Working in Britain's NHS commenced as a dream of the Windrushers from the colonies. This group of second-generation Windrushers have collectively served at the lower tiers of the NHS for a prodigious 14 decades and four years. Their relived accounts in the scenes cover getting in, moving on, getting through, then, penultimately, sending messages to their funders, their university and their NHS trust. Fueled by her passion to make the work accessible, thus leading to activism, Sankofa captures the stories for a retelling at the end of the final meet-up. Sankofa arrives home exhausted but equally exhilarated. She puts away the bags and the books. She changes into her yard clothes, sets up the coffee machine and heads off to the patio. She plans an all-nighter as she wants to capture as much of the session's reflection as she can, whilst it is still fresh. She decides to take a short break first, so she lowers herself into the rocking chair. The garden is tranquil, the moon is full. Staring at the stars, she slowly drifts into a state of semi-consciousness. As she drifts, she dreams. A tiny, dark-skinned, white-haired character appears. She's pencil-thin with big eyes and lovely white teeth. She's draped in crisp kente cloths and speaks with a quiet voice. She introduces herself as a kokonan. She explains that she's an ancestral parent, and in fact, that is exactly what her name means. She informs Sankofa that she has come to help her with her reflections of this leg of her journey. What has it all been about? What, my child? This whole journey. You know, my last decade. Life. Power. Exploitation. Superiority. Education. Failure. Inferiority. Injustice. Fear. Silencing. Subordination. Life. What is it all about? Tell me, my child, what have you found? Where do I start? How do I share it? What I've found is huge. Not all new in the larger scheme of things, but new to me. Your question is too big for me. What have I found? Well, I've revisited communication and strove to reclaim our oral history, whilst acknowledging that, because of navigating two cultures, that is not without challenge. I've written using an approach called autoethnography, And as Herman asserts, autoethnographies bridge the gap between the remembered past, the fleeting now, and the ethereal hereafter. I have relived the past, reviewed the present, and I am leaving an account of our lived experiences for the future. Our ancestors. (laughs) It's strange saying that now I'm talking to you. Anyway... You left us with positive examples of unified approaches to community empowerment, community education and self-definition. Even under colonialism, black nurses were self-motivated, strategic and impressively effective in gaining equal professional status to whites and rising to the higher echelons of nursing in the Caribbean. 
Many of you ancestors were politically astute. You utilised constitutional change to work to your benefit. Many of you did not rely on white advocates. I relive the challenges of the impact of British education on black Caribbean immigrants and their children. I learnt a great deal about how two generations, our parents and our own, simultaneously struggled towards self-identity in Britain during the 1980s. To our credit, many of my generation can navigate the British and Jamaican cultures simultaneously. Having said that, black stereotypes are still used to keep us mute and in subordinate places in the workplace and the wider society. The educational history of my generation in the UK has been tainted, but the inequitable educational experiences rallied us to education proactivity where we became co-educators of our own children through supplementary, self-funded, politically active Saturday schools. But we haven't sustained our influence. Historically and to this day, nursing education has been problematic for way too many black women. In that, it has been an inequitable provision. Nursing reforms need more thorough consultation and intentional efforts to avoid knee-jerk reactions which are strategically flawed, thus contributing to ex educational experiences and manpower waste. The assistant practitioner's role being an ex example of an underutilised provision. Widening participation was a good concept in principle, but not more than mere rhetoric in practice for some. Widening happened, but not much else. Not much else changed. Akoko Nan, are you listening to me? I am listening, child. Continue. Just thinking about obviously, which is a fundamental tool that, as you said, you know, we as Caribbean and African people use in terms of spoken word and poetry. How do you feel oracy has been used to highlight the complexities of language and identity within your research? I think I alluded to Palo Freire earlier on, and I love the whole idea of education being reciprocal. And so when I started my PhD, I really was intentional about giving credence to parts of my culture that were not seen as credible in the eyes of institutions. And so what I did, I decided that there were aspects of our lived experiences that we know, but we don't necessarily write about. So let me just try all this. <laughs> I'm going to do a little experiment here. If I said to you, Rihanna, I'm going to ask you to finish this phrase if you're able to, okay? You need to work twice as hard to... To go far, I think. <laughs> so that is something that most of us would have heard somebody, some adult in our life tell us. If it was not our parents, it would have been somebody. But we don't write about it. And a lot of us would have heard that. And that tends to permeate our communities. So part of what I wanted was to bring our wisdoms, our conventional wisdoms, which were not necessarily written, 
but were still very much part of who we were into the forefront of my research. And I actually wrote parts of the narrative in Patwa, just as the women spoke to me. And I said to my supervisors, I've had to learn about epistemology and ontology and all of that. There are times when you're going to read my work and say, Peggy, what does that mean? The learning should be reciprocal. And we agreed that and that worked really well for us. I totally agree. And I think you're right. Learning should be reciprocal. It's a shared learning space in which you're learning something and somebody's learning something from you if they want to. I say if they want to, but it shouldn't be if they want to. It just should be how it exists to learn. What have you learned since completing your PhD and how have you used this learning or knowledge in your personal and professional life? I learned how a PhD privileges you. (laughs) The title opens doors. I would say that I've lived my life as an activist, but somehow the title has really ramped up my activism because of the number of doors it's opened. One of the things that I'm really proud of is that now, because I've done my PhD, but also I've published the research, the data part of it as a book, that I will get invited to go and speak at places. And what I now do, I feel so proud of being able to do this. I'll say, I've told the stories of some women, but it would be great if you got the women now to come and tell their own stories. Because I've captured their journey so far and my PhD was finished three years ago. And so what I tend to do now, I either go along with the women and let them be the dominant narrator or I send them along and I will still ask the organisations who's inviting me to pay them what they would have paid me because it's their stories. It's their story. So I think it's the privilege. I now find it quite funny that places that I worked within the NHS that obstructed some of my attempts for promotion will now have me back as a consultant. I was there under your band six for so many years saying, can I do this, that and the other, and you wouldn't let me, and now I'm a consultant. So there's an irony in all of that too. I think that's a really interesting point to think about in terms of going on to start your consultancy outside of the NHS. Why did you start that? And, you know, obviously you talk about opening doors in a different way for you, How does that feel? They didn't see the value in you before, but now as an independent person doing this work, they can see the value. The value was always there, but for them, you know, your title adds that value to them, I guess. I'm going to be quite fair and say that I have had some amazing leaders within the NHS, but in my second to last role, I was there for a decade and I kept saying to seniors, directors, I was saying, It's not about money. I just want a wider exposure because I feel a bit stale where I am and I could do more. And I I had a manager who was great who would just let me. But we also had a director who would say, you're too intelligent, Peggy Warren. I don't know what to do with you. And also would sabotage some of the things that I did, but also was quite blatant about it. So she would say, could you write a paper for so-and-so? I'd write the paper. She'd send it back to me after a couple of months and say, this went to the board. It got through first time. And then it was her name and her deputy's name on it. I wasn't acknowledged. And so this was my mantra to myself. And I think my dad really inspired me. My dad said to me, Peggy, they can only continue to exploit your skills if you let them. 
you've got to be prepared to take a risk. So this is another message to people out there who might want to. I took a risk without really thinking about the cost. So I finished my PhD and thought I'm resigning and I resigned and then thought, ah! and then I went and took a one year fixed term contract and then planned through just making loads and loads of connections so that I would be able to sustain. And I think COVID, Black Lives Matter, bringing equality and diversity to the fore in a lot of institutions has come at the right time. That sounds really horrible, but what I mean is that my going independent has come at the right time where, you know, there's a lot of interest in this kind of work. So I've been able to sustain. I think you do a lot of work and you talk about activism and being an educator and, you know, fighting, fighting against all the oppressions that we know and exist. So how do you say you remain nourished on this journey? Is there anything that you do or access that keeps you well? I think my faith, my faith is what governs me and kind of really grounds me. I see it as part of my gifting. Although I must say that it's not always smooth because I sometimes struggle with the organisation. But I also love being one with the earth. So I am no expert gardener, but I just love tinkering and dabbling. And I've got a beautiful garden that's colourful and I plant things and reap things. But shall I tell you what really anchors me and just keeps me smiling no matter what happens? I've got three besties, best mates, and they're all octogenarians. So they range from 85 to 92. And I think those women just keep me absolutely nourished. I love spending time with them. I carve out time to spend with them every every week. They only ever see the best in me. <laughs> <laughs> They tell me stories that keep me chuckling and giggling. We can keep it real. There's no subject that's off limits. We cook together. We laugh together. We dance together. Just having them in my life is just amazingly enriching. And I know also that they're accessible. That's what nourishes me. (laughs) It's really bizarre because one of them has been my friend since I was 18. And I've transitioned through so many different stages of life. I pick up the phone now and I'll say something like, you're right, love, which is how I start my conversation. She go, morning, doc. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely hilarious that, you know, we've travelled. She's known me from when she used to give me five pounds to put petrol in my car. (laughs) So lovely. (laughs) Lastly, what are you working on now at the moment? I'm currently doing, I'm in early stages. I've only been self-employed now for coming up two years. And one of the things that I'm really wanting to see happen is more people of colour in the NHS writing for their professional bodies, but also for the NHS in and of itself. So I'm currently in conversations with people talking about how we set up a writing group for people of colour to write about their expertise and share their expertise with the wider community, wider society. I'm also exploring with a medic colleague, writing about what could coaching be like if it wasn't so Eurocentric. 
So we're thinking through that and just having lots of conversations about what could we do that's different? What would it require of us to do something different? I'm just capturing lots of thoughts and putting them in a file, which I don't know what I'll do with them yet, but I'm just really enjoying just outing my thoughts and getting them down. I don't have an intentional plan for a book or anything like that. I just want to see us writing more about ourselves so that more people like us like for me for your generation to actually reference and be able to relate to in a way that you probably haven't been able to so far thank you i look forward to reading engaging supporting (laughs) all of it it just sounds so amazing and so necessary thank you peggy you're very welcome It's been great talking to you. Thank you so very much. And I wish you every success with your PhD and the journey that you're on. And I'm going to admonish you, please try to enjoy it. It's a phenomenal journey. Production and sound design of this episode was by Hannah Ward. Thank you for listening to Respeaks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, join me again soon. Chosen generation, come, we're being called for to show his excellence. All I require, require for life, God has given me.